Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. Parshat Bishalach this morning. We are at chapter 13, verse 17, because as you know, we are in the first third of every Torah portion. We are in the first year of a triennial cycle, uh, and so we are looking at these texts for the first time in three years. Uh, next year, we'll look at the middle chunk, and the year after, the third third of every Torah portion. All right, so let's see what's happening with the Israelites this morning. What happened last week? What did we have happening in Parshat Bo? We had the plagues. We had the 8th, 9th, and we didn't get there, but the 8th, 9th, and 10th plagues. Um, what is the 10th plague? And after that, Pharaoh kicks the Israelites out of Egypt. Like, go, like, go now. Get out, right? Um, and so that... Uh, that's where we're going to pick up the story. All right, so Bishalach, Bert. Now when Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although it was nearer. For God said, the people may have a change of heart when they see war and return to Egypt. So God led the people roundabout by way of the wilderness at the Sea of Reeds. Now the Israelites went up armed out of the land of Egypt. And Moses took with him the bones of Joseph, who had exacted an oath from the children of Israel, saying, God will be sure to take notice of you, then you shall carry up my bones from here with you. They set out from Sukkot and encamped at Atham, at the edge of the wilderness. The Lord went before them in a pillar of cloud by day to guide them along the way, and in a pillar of fire by night to give them light, and they might travel that they might travel day and night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. Okay. So when it is that Pharaoh sends out the Am, the nation, the people, Micha Goodman, when we were at Hartman, did this whole lecture on not going by the way of the Philistines. I don't remember much of it, but um, you may hear about it at some point when I revisit my notes. But So there's more here than, uh, than I can even remember from that lecture. But uh, when Pharaoh sends them out, Pharaoh, uh, God does not lead them by the way of the plishtim, of the Philistines. Why? God was afraid they'd see war and go back to Egypt. Because we are dealing with a slave population. We are dealing with a people that has only known a lifetime of oppression, has only known a lifetime of servitude, a lifetime of serving Pharaoh and the taskmasters. If they are now free, that's lovely. But, you know, imagine a, imagine a puppy that you rescue, right, that's only known cages and freezing and whatever. You know, they, they just, they're, they're terrified, right? So God knows that this people, if it should see the Philistines coming out armed, if they have to fight for their freedom, they're going to freak, right? They're, they're just not, they're not designed, they're not ready to deal with what it means to actually stand up for themselves and defend themselves, or at least that's God's concern. And what might they say? I know it's, I know it's crazy, I know it's crazy, but what might they say? They're Let's go back to Egypt. Right? And of course, we're going to see these people say that over and over and over and over. <clears throat> so God's, God's fear is pretty well founded here, right? So God led the people round about, right, by way of the wilderness. So we are in the Midbar. We are in the wilderness at the Sea of Reeds. So we are not, I, I know we tend to talk desert. It's not exactly, we think Lawrence of Arabia, right, Mehmet, right, the filmmaker. Um, we, we think Lawrence of Arabia when we think of the Israelites in the desert. It's the Midbar. It's the place where there's no signpost. There's no guide. There's no super highways. But it is not desert. They, ha they are feeding their flocks, right? And remember, they have to fight. 
sometimes. So this is not uninhabited desert nothing. Okay? It is, it is the wilderness. So it is not settled territory. Um, and they have to go that way so that they don't have to be at war all the time. Right? They have to go where it's not settled by somebody. Um, but, it's, but, it's not, but it's not what we tend to think, which is desert. So they're in the Midbar. What? Is it uh, the Nile Delta? Uh, well, the, yeah, they have we, yeah, we have we have a sort of map of given the place names used in the Torah, you know, the the likely uh, route that the final redactor ha- and I can't find it in my book now um, ha- has them go. But remember, this is. So stories, <laughs> right? So, it involves a lot of territory, right? Because they're so yes and yes, and I mean they're they're going to go, they're going to go a a circuitous route, right? They don't go from here to there. Then we then we could map it, and I could tell you exactly. So to get from Egypt. To Canaan, should, they should have gone by way of Philistine territory, but God knows that they're not brave enough to handle what might happen, right, if they go that way. All right. And this is a journey that's not supposed to take all that long. Yeah. To go from Egypt to Canaan shouldn't take all that long, right? I mean, it's a schlep, but a week (laughs) right 10 days all right so this this is supposed to be a really short trip so of course they can go around right if you don't don't freak them out just go around we've read this book before haven't we so we know that's not exactly what happens but that was the plan at this point okay so they they are going roundabouts. They're going to be coming up to Yamsuf. Suf is a loan word from uh, Egyptian. And the Israelites come up armed. How did they come up armed out of the land? Party favors. All right. So they borrowed stuff from the Egyptians on their way out, right? All right. So it is. What did we call it one year? We called it um, reparations, right? God makes sure that there's reparations for the Israelites for their years of slavery, and they take jewelry and other things. They borrow it from the Egyptians. Okay, so Moshe, in keeping faith with the promise that was made to Yosef, right, takes the bones of Yosef, atzamot Yosef. They take the bones of Yosef with them, um, Yosef, who had made them promise, right? When you get out of here, then take me with you. Take my bones with you. Remember, we have secondary burial. So the flesh would have rotted off the body. The bones are collected, and they're put in an ossuary, and it is the ossuary that is buried. So this is 400 years after Joseph. So how did they know? So, so there's lots of midrash about how did they know that either because he was so famous and so royally attached, he, I guess he's not royal, but he's right attached to royalty, um, that that it was known where his bones were. There's like there's a wonderful story in the Talmud about magically that they come up out of the water. Yeah, Hollywood's got nothing on the rabbis, by the way, nothing. <laughs> So, um, how come it, it didn't say that Jacob's bones should be taken? Wasn't Jake, didn't Jacob die in Egypt? So, it's a good question. Where, where's everybody else? <laughs> like, where's where, where are the 12 others? Right? Because right? we've got all the 11 brothers and Dina. Where's where are their bones? Yeah. Right? Um, and why did Yosef extract a promise from them saying, when you get out of here? How did he know? When Yosef is still alive, things are pretty groovy with, right, his family hanging out in, right, Egypt. And they had it really good. So lots of questions. 
Okay, so Mehmet, the filmmaker, has uh, created the story that it is, Yosef has a dream, okay, that they're going to be enslaved or something's going to turn, and they're, a, a dream for all of us? Say more. Yeah, I mean, he dreamed that we, we might be enslaved for like years, and then uh, all bad things turn good. Look at Mehmet's like, <laughs> like we know how this happened. Because he had a dream about his brothers. He told his brothers. Right? So he stands on firm ground and saying it might be a dream that Yosef has, a vision. You hear that all bad things turn good eventually. And so. It be great hope. Thank you. Right. Right. All right. So. So they take Yosef's bones uh, with them out of Egypt. They set out from Sukkot. They camp at Etam. God goes before them in a pillar of cloud by day, right, so that they know where to go, and by uh, a pillar of fire at night so that there's <coughs> presumably light and protection, right? So God's, God's presence is made manifest to them visually so that they know that they are accompanied so that they don't panic so that they don't freak Um, and so during the day it's cloud and by night it is fire alright the Lord said to Moses tell the Israelites to turn back and encamp before Pihachirot between Migdol and the sea before Baal Zephon you shall encamp facing it by the sea Pharaoh will say of the Israelites, they are astray in the land. The wilderness has closed in on them. Then I will stiffen Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, that I may gain glory through Pharaoh and all his hosts. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. Okay. Yes, Judith. We don't have a tradition particularly of reliquary, of saving bones and artifacts of people, though, do we? It, it's not that they were saving them. It's that Yosef wanted to not be buried in Egypt. Mm-hmm. That when they left Egypt, he wanted to be buried, right? Home, at home. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's not, no, it's not about keeping them. It's about taking them with them so that he, he would be buried okay. back home. But when somebody asked, what about all the other bones? Um, that's what made me think. We don't usually pay attention to that. Right, but how come Yosef didn't say, take my bones and the bones of our family members? Yeah, the bones of our... Right, because our, the tradition was to bury everybody together mm-hmm. in a cave, right, in a, in a, in a, at a burial site. So he, he asked that his bones be taken, but what about Dad? Yeah. Right, and his brothers, right? And Moshe, Moshe did go into a cave and die, right? No. Where does Moshe die? On the mountain, yes. Overlooking Canaan, overlooking the promised land. Mark? I noticed the first four sentences. says Elohim. Now we switch to Adonai. What's the story? What's going on? Elohim traditionally is the god of justice. yud heh is the god of what? Mercy and compassion. So sometimes it is that it is a quality of the divine that's being evoked. What's the other thing it sometimes tells us when we see different names used for God? Written by different Thank you very much. Gold star to Sheldon. Right? We have who are who are our sources? Mm-hmm. Come on, people. There you go. All right. J, E, P, and D. These are our sources. So we often can tell who's writing by which name of God is being used. Are we looking at the Yahwist or the Elohist? Right? And sometimes it's P putting a gloss on one of these two. Yeah? So P went back and altered and glossed over and changed. Yes, P comes with the priestly agenda to edit these texts. Um, th- there's still a lot of argument in the scholarly liter- literature about whether P is early or P is late. Um, 
So it depends which argument you buy as to when that happened and what exactly the agenda would have been. I'm going too far afield to ask what the priestly agenda is. Okay, too far afield in this room? <laughs> Not sure it even applies. But um, what is the priestly agenda? So it, there's lots written, like it's a huge answer, but to Bikitsor, not at all. Um, Bikitsor, in short, P is very concerned with the whole agenda of genealogy. So whenever you see so-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so, that is always P. And that's the priestly agenda. Yes, the priestly, yes. The priestly agenda is very, very interested in making sure lineage sure. traces back um, to where it belongs, right, within the Levitical, right, clan. Um, and, and depending on which P we're talking about, because part of, we have a response to P, which we've talked about before, which is what? H. What's H? Huh? Holiness code. Right? So, so there's, different, there's different agendas going on sometimes with the priests. The priests, of course, are concerned very much with the ritual, right? And with authenticating the ritual. So we have a lot about the tabernacle, right? All of those things that are happening in the temple that they need to place in the desert. They need to place it really early, right? So P's very concerned with all that stuff. P has huge agendas. Um, H, the holiness code, probably is uh, priests responding to the early prophets. That the early prophets are saying, wait a minute, all you care about is sacrifice and doing it the right way and when you're supposed to bring it and how you're supposed to bring it and all this technology. But what about being a good person, right? What about being just and fair and honest and all of those things? And so the early prophets are preaching against just having a religious technology and not a moral and ethical approach and framework. And so P has to respond. Okay. So, we're, what's happening? <laughs> All right, so that goes to the JE, that goes to the Elohim, Yudhe Vavhe question. Okay. Where are we now? Verse 5. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> Do you want me to read? Please. <laughs> when the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his courtiers had a change of heart about the people and said, What is this that we have done, releasing Israel from our service? He ordered his chariot and took his men with him. He took 600 of his picked chariots and the rest of the chariots of Egypt with officers and all of them. The Lord stiffened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he gave chase to the Israelites. As the Israelites were departing defiantly, the Egyptians gave chase to them, and all the chariot horses of Pharaoh, his horsemen and his warriors, overtook them in camp by the sea near Pihachirod uh, before Baal-Saphon. As Pharaoh drew near, the Israelites caught sight of the Egyptians advancing upon them. Greatly frightened, the Israelites cried out to the Lord, and they said to Moses, Was it for want of graves in Egypt that you brought us to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us, taking us out of Egypt? Is, <clears throat> is this not the very thing we told you in Egypt, saying, Let us be, and we will serve the Egyptians? For it's better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness." But Moses said to the people, Have no fear. Stand by and witness the deliverance which the Lord will work for you today. For the Egyptians who you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will battle for you. You hold your peace. Okay. <clears throat> We're coming. This is like one of my favorite parts of Torah. One of my favorites. All right. So... So, so when it was told to Pharaoh, right, that the people had fled, what happens to Pharaoh? We've, we've heard a lot about chazaking, God chazaking Pharaoh's heart, right? And cavating Pharaoh's heart, making it heavy, strengthening it, like all these words, words used. So what's the word used here? This is a different verb. So his heart is flipped over, right? When you order a latte in Israel, it's cafe hafuch, flipped over coffee, right? So it's, it reverses. 
Um, so he said, go, get out. Fine, I don't want you anyway, right? You're a bunch of troublemakers, get out. And now his heart reverses. It flips and he now, right? He and his avadav, he and his servants, his court, um, right? Are gonna go after the people, right? All right. What, like, what did what did we do? What were we thinking? Right? We let we let them we let them go. What the heck were we thinking? All right. So, he orders his chariots, right, and picks six hundred chariots. You can imagine slaves on foot versus chariots. Um, you know, with I mean, just think of all your favorite movie scenes, right? Of you know charioteers, right. I think of Kirk Douglas and, you know, Allah Shalom, he should rest in peace, right? Um, you know, the ben, all those, you know, chair, and with things on the side of the wheel that will shred you to ribbons, right? I mean, it's, it's terrifying, right? The, it's meant to be a, a scene that is absolutely terrifying. And they, they come after the Israelites, yeah? And the Israelites, how are they departing? Yes, they did not have cars. They are departing on foot. Indeed, they are. You can't put anything by this group. All right. Uh, I, know I have this image of they're departing on Harley's. All right. So, <coughs> the end of verse eight, they depart biyad Ramah. Defiantly. Defiantly. So literally in Hebrew, biyad ramah, with their hand high, right? So this is actually based on art that we have um, from ancient Near Eastern arts with uh, gods brandishing a weapon. Um, so this is, a, this is definitely a statement about the fact that they are being delivered by yod vav They are now... Powerful, they are to be feared, right? So this this defiance as they leave uh, Egypt. How does God deliver them? With Yad Chazaka, right? With a mighty Yad, a mighty hand and arm, and an outstretched arm. Okay, so the very very typical ancient Near Eastern imagery about. Power, right? And if you think about the '60s, yes, right, is not unfamiliar to us. This image of right of the fist upraised being a symbol of power and resistance and rebellion and right. So you see it in, in Egyptian art all the time. So it's very, very common, right, in this region at, at this time in particular. Okay, so they come after them with chariots. And uh, they come to Pihachirot before Baal Tzaphon. All right. And so as Pharaoh comes near, Ufarochi Kriv, right? And so he's drawing close. The Israelites, right? Um, so B'nai Yisrael, the, the people of Israel, lift their eyes. And yo, here is Egypt. So often, right, the king is associated with the place. So he embodies Egypt, right? It's not just Pharaoh coming. It's Egypt. Egypt is coming. Um, and so what... What's their response? Vayiru me'od. They they are very very frightened, right? Vayiru me'od. They're very scared. Vayitz akuvene Israel el yudhe vavhe, and and Israel cries out to yudhe vavhe. So they're crying out to God, and then what happens? <laughs> then, like all good oppressed people, they round on their leader, right? And like Jews, they're going to turn now on their leader. Vayomru el Moshe. So they cry out to Yudhe Vavhe, Vayomru el Moshe, and they turn to Moshe and say, what? There weren't enough plots at Mount Sinai Cemetery in Egypt? 
You had to bring us out here to die? Lovely, right? Okay, so sarcasm, right? Fear that could have been expressed, oh no, help us. Moshe, whatever shall we do? But this is a story about Jews. (laughs) Written by Jews. And so we have sarcasm instead. What? There wasn't enough room in Egypt. You didn't have the money. You had to come here, right? So it's so difficult. difficult. Exactly right. All right. First instance of the Jewish stand-up comedy. Yeah, right. I mean, it's right. It's very. All you have to do is put the accent right and the the shrug and what? There weren't enough graves there. You had to. Okay. So, what have you done to us? Second guessing. Yes, it's funny, but also it's it's that we should we could have done something different. You know, maybe this was. We should have done something different. I mean, it's worse than second guessing. You're always trying to like be compassionate to them, Laura. Um, sometimes, some years I am. I'm not so much this year. So they, um, it's worse than second guessing. They're saying they're 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 being mean out of their fear. They are being mean to Moshe, right? And, and being sarcasm is always mean, right? It, I mean, as a response, it's always about anger and fear, like, and all that stuff, feeling small, so you need to put someone else in their place with sarcasm. So th- they, are, they are angry, right? And, and usually and often, or I, I don't know about usually, I have to think about it, but often anger is what's underneath, I mean, fear is what's underneath anger, right? Because it's way easier and more comfortable for us to feel anger than to feel fear. So they are, they're, they're angry, and they turn to Moshe, right, and say, if we're, now we're going to die horribly. We could have died in Egypt doing what we were doing, like the 400 years before us of generations. You, you're, you brought us out here to have this kind of a death, really? Audrey? No, I, I was just going like this, but the flip side of it, you know, one side is very good. Like, yeah, you said it. I was just okay. I was processing. Uh, okay. <laughs> but if you process with your hands in the air, people, I'm going to call on you. So just know that. All right. All right. So yes. Yeah. So this is a story about Jews, but doesn't the um, explicit message at the end of Isaiah 14? Or say that this is actually about Pharaoh doing something, sorry, about God doing something to convince the Egyptians or something? 100%. So that's a whole nother, that's a whole nother thing. Yes, 100%. That's something else that's going on. But when we look at the Israelites' response to being afraid, right, that's about Jews, right? That's how. That the Egyptians are not convinced by the plagues and such that God is. Lord at this point? Well, we, we see that they seem to be convinced by the plagues. Right? They, were, they, were, they were convinced at plague eight. When we started last week, Pharaoh's courtiers were saying, like, how long are you going to let them stay? Like, get rid of them, right? Um, so definitely by plague 10, everybody's on board with get rid of these people. Um, but God keeps intervening. Right and doing something to Pharaoh's heart that results in Pharaoh not letting them go. Right and yes, and our we've talked a lot about the theological difficulty of God who sets Pharaoh and the Egyptians up essentially to be schmeist for God's own glory. So that for sure is happening. So so just looking at this middle part, this is about the Israelite response. They get sarcastic. They get angry. They turn on Moshe. But thank God, this will be the last time that happens. <laughs> right? Is it in the Torah somewhere? Uh, so we're going to verse 12, right? I know right. that's where you're going. Is this not the very thing we told you about in Egypt, saying, let us be and we will serve the Egyptians, for it's better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness? No, is the answer to your question. We do not have it anywhere in Torah that they said that. We do not. So, what does that mean? They said they said it. So, what does that mean? And we haven't seen that. Hmm? 
What do you mean it was added in? What was added in? Some, something was left out. <laughs> we don't have it. So either it's lost to us, it's material that is lost, it's material the redactor cut out, or, or what? Alternative facts. Or alternative facts. Or they're saying, we told you way back in Egypt, leave us here, leave us alone. We're fine, thank you very much, Mr. Moses. And you're invisible. So could be that they're making it up. We don't know. The, the omniscient author doesn't tell us, right, what, if, there, if that actually happened or not. We don't know. All right. So Moshe says to them, oh, one of my favorite parts of Torah. Here we go. Vayomer Moshe el ha'am. And God says to the people, uh, Moshe says to the people, al tira'u, don't be afraid. Hit yatzvu. Do we remember this word nitzavim? Atem nitzavim hayom. Y'all are all standing here today. It is the word we use when we erect a pillar. Right? This is not just stand still. This is hit yatzvu. Be strong. Plant yourselves here. Right? So don't be afraid. Hit yatzvu. Stand here, or and see the saving of Yudhe the salvation of Yudhe Hayom, that God will do for you today. This it's it's the Hebrew is really hard to it's not a it's hard, it's a little hard to translate, but essentially Mitzrayim, Egypt that y'all see Hayom today. You won't again ever see them forever. will go to war for you. And y'all, zip it. <laughs> y'all shut up. Right, y'all? Quiet. Does it say hold your peace? Yeah, yes. okay. yeah, yeah, exactly. Shuck it. So um, it, it's a little stronger than hold your peace, yeah. right? It's, yeah. it, I mean, and it doesn't have to be negative so much as it is just stop, right? Kind of like this is not helpful, right? Like you just, just, right? Mm. All right. So. Now we're going to have an interesting. T- this is why I love this text. This, go on. This piece go, right here. go on. Go on. 15. Then the Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry out to me? Tell the Israelites to go forward. And you lift up your rod and hold out your arm over the sea and split it so that the Israelites may march into the sea on dry ground. And I will stiffen the hearts of the Egyptians so that they go in after them. And I will gain glory through Pharaoh and all his warriors, his chariots, and his horsemen. Let the Egyptians know that I am Lord when I gain glory through Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. Okay, to the agenda of God. God has a very clear agenda here, right? We may have our issues with it, but the, but the text is very clear about what God's agenda is. All right, so, so Moshe's talking to the people. The very next line of Torah is, Vayomer Yudhevavhe El Moshe. Yurevafe says to Moshe, Matitak Eli, what are you crying to me for? Daber Bene Israel, speak to Bene Israel Bayisau and have them move. All right. Where was Moshe calling to God? Hmm? On the seashore? In his heart? Do, where, where do we have that? Moshe's talking to the people. And the very next line of Torah says, and God says to Moshe, why are you crying out to me? Jonah? Well, this feels like the most interesting part of the whole text. Oh, it is, by far. Because that is, Moses stands up, and he's the leader. And he says this great, he makes a commandment, it's, you know, do this, and he says it in a powerful way. And then God infers and hears, oh, he's terrified. He's absolutely terrified here. And then, he, then they have a, a conversation. Very nice. Very nice. Here's Moshe, the leader. 
don't worry, don't panic, don't be afraid. You will never see them again. You just watch what Yehovah is going to do for you. You stand still, look, see, and shh. <laughs> and God, what does God respond to? The fact that God knows that is all mm. bluster. <laughs> that is all a show for the people, and that Moshe's terrified. It's like this inner dialogue we have with ourselves when we look strong, but we, in ourselves, we say, oh, I'm, I'm not that strong, but I have to act strong. It's, it's that inner fight, it's that inner battle. We are a weaker self. So does God hear the inner fight for, of Moshe? Okay. Bert? This is always so powerful to me because it's saying don't just pray, it's time for action, which I can relate to some people today who in certain situations say, well, what we need is prayer, and other people say, no, what we need is action. And God is basically saying, do it. <laughs> right. Don't stop and daven to me. There's, and there's the lots of Midrash that fills this conversation out where God says, don't start with Shachrit now. <laughs> like, I, don't start with Michamocha and Shema and Behavta and the Tefillah. Like, like this, there's a time to pray and there's a time to move. Mm-hmm. Tell the people to move. What he told them was, don't be afraid. Just watch what God's going to do. Right? And God's saying, not me. <laughs> well, what's interesting is it's not, it's not so much God saying, not, uh, not me. It's God saying, why are you crying to me? They have to move. Like For me, it's like God saying to Moshe, don't you understand how this works? I can't do anything until they move. Until the people move forward anyway, nothing can open. Is this the origin of the Nachshan story? Yes. Um, uh, yeah, not yet. Oh. Almost. So, um, so, like, until you take the job as associate rabbi in Pacific Palisades, you can't become senior rabbi. That can't open up. You have to get on the plane not knowing what's going to happen. You have to go forward anyway. Let's just say. <laughs> and you have to take your six-year-old with you and take her away from everything she knows and maybe it'll work and maybe it won't. Right? But nothing can open until you get on the plane. Tell them to move. You can Stop talking to me. There's nothing I can do until they go forward. For me, it is one of the most powerful messages of Torah. It is one of the most powerful moments of Torah. There's only water ahead and there's chariots behind. We can't go back because we know that'll kill us. We know what that does. We cannot go back. But it looks like if we go forward, for sure, we will drown. For sure. And it makes sense, doesn't it? That they're like, and that Moshe's terrified. It makes absolute sense. What could possibly happen that's going to mean they're not going to die right now? And their children, they're going to watch their children die right now. What could possibly change? And it can't until they move forward anyway. I see this also as God saying, what, you don't think I have a plan? Did you see what just has been happening with the plagues and then this, and, and now you're doubting the plan? Right. Another trust. That, trust. Right, the, the, and, and, and we could understand maybe God's frustration with Moshe because Moshe all along has doubted God, hasn't he? Yeah, yeah. All along, from the snare, from the burning bush, Moshe has said, pick somebody else. You have the wrong guy. 
really? <laughs> really? <laughs> right? So, do you remember who I am? Right? So, and Moshe doesn't know who this is. What does Moshe know from Yudhei Vavhei? Right. Moshe grew up in Pharaoh's palace. So, so you can see possibly God's frustration saying to Moshe, oh, really? Where, did you not see seven, eight, and nine? And then 10? Hello? Every house in Egypt lost somebody. Do you truly stand here right now doubting that I can do this? Do you really think I don't have a plan? Okay, George, you look concerned. Yeah. <laughs> well, why should you trust a god or someone who has hardened the hearts of Pharaoh to make them... First of all, we don't know that Israel knows that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. The omniscient author tells us, the reader, that. We don't know that the Israelites know anything about that. Right? <laughs> I got out of that one, right? All right, so, um, so <laughs> right? I didn't come down with yesterday's rain, George. Right? So, so we don't know that they know that, and they have seen 10 plagues that have not afflicted them and I'm not arguing for one interpretation or the other here. I'm saying you could, you could imagine that God is like, what's it going to take? Moshe, just move them, right? It's still interesting that we don't have Moshe crying out. And it's interesting that the implication is that Moshe can decide not to move forward. And that God, I mean... In the story, God could have made Moses do Moshe do anything he wants, but the relationship is such that without Moses doing but we Moses never story, have that. We never have that with our leaders ever. Mm-hmm. God doesn't make Abraham do anything. Right. The that's, test that's is: Will Abraham do? Of course. The, the, we don't have that. There's, that's a different tradition, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? That God doesn't do that in our story ever. God gives us free will. Correct, except apparently, not to Pharaoh, <laughs> right, which is a which is a whole other thing. Susan, why, why why was it necessary for God to harden Pharaoh's heart as the Israelites were leaving? Yeah. Why? God said so. God said why? <laughs> why? What would the text say? Michelle Pharaoh, right? That he's God, right? Eighteen. So that Egypt will know, I am Yudhei I split the sea for that, right? You know, they're going to think you're trapped. This is my great plan. My plan is they're going to think you're trapped. And they're going to go, <laughs> watch cool. this. And I am going to, right, save y'all and completely obliterate them. So do you have a problem with that God, Susan? Is that what's happening right now? Yeah. You're a, it looks like, yeah, you're not happy yeah, no. with Yodhei Vafe here. Yeah, because, because he could have still done the miracle of crossing the, the Sea of the Spirit um, without killing all the Egyptians. And the Egyptians still would have said, oh my God, this is a God. <laughs> the, the, rabbis, the rabbis have the same problem. There's reams of Midrash written about this. Um, because the rabbis also have a problem. They don't like to admit it, but they write tons of midrash, right, to defend God here. Um, because it does seem pretty it's yucky. It's all a setup. Um, and God goes to great lengths to set them up for like a, di- a major disaster. Um, and so, you know, the rabbis, the rabbis have, remember we talked about the character of Satan, right? Um, and so they, they imagine this, this whole heavenly court at this moment. The whole heavenly court is like watching, right? Oh no, what's going to happen to B'nai Israel? They look stuck, right? So everybody's watching from heaven. Um, and um, where was I going with this? Oh, so, so God, so then, then God, and, and everyone's nervous. All the, all the angels, everybody's freaking out up there. Like, oh no, not B'nai Israel. You can't do that to them. Oh no, poor Moshe. And then the sea splits. The it comes back on the Egyptians and they're all like the crowd goes wild and God goes stop how dare you celebrate when my children are drowning in the sea 
So, which is a really interesting midrash for the rabbis who are defending God to write. <laughs> right? Um, so the rabbis get it. The rabbis are, are a little upset, I think, also, that the Egyptians get set up. And ultimately, it's what has to be. This is our national saga, and it needs to be victorious. Yeah. This book, these stories and Bible, it was written for people who lived like 2,000 years ago. It needs to move them against them and make them decisions and be strong against the evil world and everything. So it needs to be much stronger and much more grotesque than it probably used to be. Right, and it's, it's, it's also written by people, and it's even longer than 2,000 years ago, it's written by people whose gods go to war for them and beat up the other gods and destroy the other nation. So we don't, we don't thank God, we're not fundamentalists, right? We, we don't have to be comfortable with this. We don't have to like it, and we get to say that. We get to say, yuck, right? But these are stories written by people whose gods go to war, why would it be any different with Yudhei Vavhe, right? Yudhei Vavhe has to go to war for his people, or he's a wimp. You, you can't make it in the ancient Near East if you don't war on behalf of your people. Well, to that point, isn't it important that Pharaoh makes a claim to be God, in, or divine, at least in the Egyptian tradition? So would it be insane to say that this is fundamentally a story about God destroying false gods? So, uh, yes, I just want to reverse engineer a little bit of what you said, which is, that's what it was. Pharaoh was God in Egypt, right? It's not that they needed to write that, right. that he thought he was God. That's, that's what was in the ancient world, is that Pharaoh claimed to be a deity, right? And so, of course, this is a story about your God who goes to war on your behalf, and of course, destroys Pharaoh, who, guess what? Not so much of a god now, right? So yeah, hundred percent. It's that he's going to destroy Yudhei Vavhe is going to destroy someone who's claiming to be a god, right? Yes. There's somewhat of a conflict between looking at these stories as the lore, the anthropology of a lost civilization, and looking at it now from our point of view, where we're Jews and we want to see the Jewish story in it. So we read it from the Jewish point of view, not from the anthropological point of view of how these societies all interacted and fought each other. Gods fought each other. Reading Greek myths, we have the same thing with all the Greek gods fighting each other. It's their lore, and we're looking at a civilization that is gone to enrich what we understand about our own civilization now. Right, so it's not an either or. We read it both ways. Yes. In this room, we read it both ways. Right. We read it in its setting yes. so that we can live with it because we have to read it in its time and in its setting. And then we read Rami Shapiro, yes. who's going to tell us what it means for us. Yes. Amy, could you also look at this as since God had recently chosen the Jews as God's test of their belief in God saying, cross the water, don't worry, trust in me, and that's God's test that you really are worth choosing? Could you look at it that way? For sure, for sure. All right, do not be afraid, writes Rabbi Rami Shapiro about our scene. There are two kinds of fear, the fear that liberates and the fear that freezes. The fear that freezes is the fear that rests upon our own projections. I love this. We imagine that we fear the unknown, but that is impossible. After all, if we do not know it, how can we fear it? Rather, we fill in the unknown with the already known and fear that. We imagine that we know and then freeze ourselves in the past where all knowing takes place. This is what the Hebrews are doing in our Parsha. Such fear always leads to slavery. Slavery to ideas, slavery to people, slavery to emotions, slavery to isms and ideologies that freeze one in the status quo. But life has no status quo. Life is ever moving and ongoing. Fear of the ongoingness of life is the fear that has the Hebrews trapped at the sea. And it is this fear that Moshe seeks to thwart. 
The fear that liberates is the fear referred to in the phrase um, that we get uh, from God in Proverbs, which is a fear that is best rendered as awe. It arises when we see the terrifying reality of yud heh vav heh. We are in awe of the wondrously stark and deadly power of a hurricane. We are in awe of the dangerously beautiful power of a tiger. We are in awe of glorious colors of death that transform the green trees of summer into the multi-hued forests of fall. We are in awe of a baby's first moments of life and an elder's last. From moment to moment, life is awesome, gorgeous, deadly, and loving. It is the wild wealth of infinite possibility that awes us. And it is our awe of the infinite that empties our minds of isms and opens our heart to compassion. This is a good fear, for it preempts any status quo and forces us to move on even as life moves on. Take courage and see. Moshe urges the people not to fear, not to freeze in their tracks, not to become immobile in the face of their own predicament, but he does not yet urge them to move on. Before they can move on, they must take courage. They must face and accept the reality of their predicament in the here and now. Only when they can see what their options might be can they move. Yudhe says to Moshe, why do you cry out to me? Moshe wasn't talking to God. Moshe is a human being and is torn, conflicted. He wishes to instill his people with courage, to put up a good front, but deep inside he's frightened and cannot see a way out. And God's response? Stop calling me. The solution to your problem arises neither from your faking a courage you do not feel, nor from your crying out to God for some miraculous intervention. If there is a solution to your problem, It is being wholehearted. It is in confronting your fear honestly and moving beyond it. As long as Moshe is split within himself, there is no hope of salvation. What is true of Moshe is true of all of us. We cannot move forward if we are divided against ourselves. Yet how can we drive out fear and do away with doubt? We cannot. We need not. Only surrendering to fear defeats it. Surrendering to our fear and our doubts allows us to own up to them and then to act despite them. Right? Speak to the children of Israel. Speak, don't argue. Speak, don't command. Speak, don't yell. And say what? Tell them that he too was frightened and that despite his fear, he's going forward. Tell them that there is no way back to Egypt, that the past is past and only the unknown future lies ahead. (coughs) Tell them that their doubts and their fears are natural. Tell them not to resist them, but to accept them and move forward anyway. And let them move forward. Let them, not make them. As long as Moshe imagines that he's responsible for the actions of others, he and they are trapped. As long as he imagines that he must conquer his fear and theirs, he is impotent. The leader can only model the desired behavior. The leader can only point the way. As long as he imagines that it is his task to keep them from doing what they need to, that he needs to help them accept their fear and then move forward. So Rabbi Shapiro gives us this amazing interpretation of Torah as every single one of us, every time we're flipping out. Because whenever we make our decisions and our choices out of fear, completely out of fear, it is never going to end up in anything other than latching on to something, right? An ism, an ideology, an oppressor, latching on to something that's going to somehow, right, shield us from our own fear. We have to confront it. We have to face it. We have to stand still. We have to shut up. Right? We have to be quiet and we have to figure out a way to confront it honestly and with compassion for ourselves and then find a way to move forward. No one can make us. No one can push us. We have to do it in our own time. They have to move. They have to be the ones to pick up one foot and put it directionally that way. Um, towards what looks like, right, um, absolute, uh, for sure, death.
Um, I find this incredibly powerful right now. Um, I find this really powerful right now because it looks like that way, right? We're gonna get shredded, but it looks like that way, we're just gonna, we're gonna drown. And, and it's, this, it's this incredible moment of, um, of fear. I don't know about y'all, but I'm terrified. When I heard what happened in Iowa, I was like, it's oh my God, we're here we are, right? And then you start hearing more stuff about interference with possibly you know, people jamming the phone lines on purpose to disrupt the election. O-M-G. Here, people, here we are. And so like, I was like, okay, you know that I don't believe in a God that like, manipulates stuff. God manipulated everything so that we could read this to our person like, right now. Um, because if we act out of fear, for sure, we're done. We're done. But, but you, can't not, you can't not move. But I'm very clear that we have to be really grown up here. We have to be really aware of what's happening. We have to be really aware and check ourselves I'll speak for me. I need to check myself constantly right now about what I'm acting out of. What am I talking out of, right? What, what am I talking to myself out of right now? Um, and to really figure out, like, just stand still, right? Get quiet and like, and we really have to, we really have to confront what's happening because it's the only way we're gonna be able together, together, not leaving one hoof behind. Remember, remember that line from last week? We're not leaving one hoof behind. Together, we have got to move forward. And it's the only way some path that we don't see right now is going to open up. So even just coming to Torah study the last couple of weeks and listening, I'm even, the way I'm interpreting this message today is like, yeah, I'm in fear of suffering in a way that I do not know. Because I, myself, I'm enslaved to suffering in ways that I know how to cope. And so when I hear this, it's like, yes, to move forward is like to have faith, to be connected to your spirit. Because this is also a message, too, that these people are not connected to their spirit because they are in fear. They don't know what love is. They don't know what it means to be not only rooted, but also to love up and be, aha, this is my life. Like, I have this chance right now. And so this is so powerful. And I just thank you so much for reading this because this makes me really proud to um, be here. And my will to act is to be part of my community and to listen, to be a better listener, to um, really show up and be present and not have my ego walk in the room, but how can I be of service amongst my brothers and sisters? Well said. And we saw last week, a shortness of spirit, right? That, that when we suffer too much, right, we, we tend to come out of a Kotzeruach, a shortness of spirit. And because of their Kotzeruach, they couldn't hear a message of redemption. They couldn't hear a possibility other than what they knew. Right? And a fear that that's what's going to continue. And in this moment, they're at, that, they're at that moment of it could all change. And they can't, right? They can't see it. They're, they're too afraid. Right? And if we read the text the way Rami and Jonah read it, Moshe's terrified too. Everybody's terrified. Everybody's stuck. The good news is they move forward, all right? That's the good news of the story. There is a midrash. This is where Nachshon comes in as a midrash. And I said to somebody last night that that's not in Torah, and they were like, what? Yeah. <laughs> Nachshon's not in the Torah? I'm like, nope. You can look all through the, the whole five books. Not there. His name is there. But the story of Nachshon being that they're all arguing and Nachshon walks into the sea and when the water closes over his head, that's when the miracle is affected. That is Midrash. In that same collection of Midrashim is a Midrash that says the men, the leaders of the tribes started arguing. 
Who should go first? They should go first. No, they should go first. No, they should go first. And so they're all arguing, and the women link hands. And the women start walking and wind up pushing the men who are still arguing into the water. And that's when the miracle happens. Okay. That's what we need to do. Right. So um, I, it's not even that hard to imagine that that's how it happened. What? Well, but which is which is why it's so fabulous. Which is why it's so fabulous, right? That that the men, the male rabbis, right, whose whole occupation was to sit around and play with this stuff all day, wrote this medrash that the men were arguing, and the women are the ones who push them. Andy Garb likes it. All right. So we'll close with this. I've given you this wonderful piece. You should read the whole thing when you get home. It's fantastically yummy. It is Rabbi Lawrence Kushner. So this is Larry Kushner from his book, The River of Light. So we're at 127. Look at page 127. So Larry Kushner is setting up that once he did a workshop and he had somebody play the ocean, like lay down on the floor. He had somebody play Israel. He had somebody play God. He had somebody play Moshe. So he was doing bibliodrama with this scene, right? So that, that's where we are on the, the bottom paragraph of 127, yes? All right. So the person who played God stood on a chair and watched, like fourth line down. Pharaoh coming closer, the people's panic, the sea's refusal, Moses' bewilderment, and all of us, we who knew what was supposed to happen, began to feel an uneasiness as God refused to split the sea. We all agreed that God had but this one thing to do and felt a genuine fear that in this reenactment, this God might let playing God go to his head and remain silent. People actually said to God, come on, split the sea. The anxiety grew greater still until it seemed as though our dream play would end in a nightmare disaster. And then, at the last possible emotional moment, God, in almost a whisper, said only, it's time now. People actually cheered. The sea, almost with gratitude, acknowledged a power greater than its own and rolled aside. And the children of Israel went through its midst on dry ground. And it occurred to us in retrospect that this is perhaps all the one of being ever says. It's time now. You may enter the waters and not be destroyed, only transformed. The very waters that will purify you will at the same time rid you forever of a part of you named Pharaoh and his soldiers. Beautiful. It's time. And we have to wait we have to wait till the last possible emotional, psychological, spiritual moment because that's, that's, that's the only time that it's time. And it's hard, right? All those people in that room were like, come on, but, right? Because we, we panic and we want it to happen now and we want it to happen in our time. Please make this stop. Please make this stop. And we can't. It can't happen until it's time. But can't we see it coming? No. So our challenge as human beings, I think, is that we're, we're, we, we don't see it coming. And some things we can't see, which is why, which is why it's so hard. Right? That's why at Hanukkah we light the flames before solstice. We don't wait for there to be any evidence that the light is returning. We light the first candle of Hanukkah in the darkest moon of the darkest month of the darkest time of the year. And at this moment of panic, of, of it can't possibly work, there's no options that are good. We're asked to stand still and to find a way to deal with our fear and to wait, to wait for the answer, it's time now because we can't act before it's time. So I think this, 
teaching is incredibly powerful and for me, this week, this Shabbat and this coming week is gonna be about truly allowing Pharaoh to drown. <laughs> right, like over and over and over. Transformation, right, is about allowing Pharaoh, right, to drown and get out of our way of thinking, doing, believing, hoping, working for what we know isn't here yet, but will be, God willing, in time. Shabbat Shalom. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday Morning Torah Study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.